Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Hebrews um, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Hear now God's Word. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Last couple of weeks, we looked at Psalm 32 with a focus upon the forgiveness of sins, particularly the joy that comes when we feel the release of that burden of our sins, the guilt of our sins, and the joy of God's having cast them as far as the east is from the west. We really have a hard time grasping that, believing that. We have to be reminded of it. But how did that happen? What was the cost of that? And so here we are in our annual calendar. We are approaching next Friday, what we call Good Friday. It's good because of what happened and what it accomplished, the death of the Son of God for his people. It's a fixed reminder that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and that means to forgive their sins. That's how we're saved. That's it. Our sins are taken out and we're brought back into communion with God. That's the problem. Sin separated us. And I want us to look at this passage in the book of Hebrews. This is, of course, like all, but this is a powerful book that ties the Old Testament with the New Testament and helps us see the big picture of what God was doing regarding the work of Christ and our salvation, our restoration, our being brought back into fellowship with him. Next Friday, we will commemorate the death of Jesus on the cross, which, of course, is one of the critical events of our salvation. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, and thus his crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection forms the apex the crescendo of redemptive history. Without the cross, we have no hope. Just like as we read this morning in Jesus coming in toward the temple to Jerusalem, the cry of a crowd crying out Hosanna to the king, anticipating his kingship, excited, hopeful, But soon there was another crowd. This was not the same crowd that just flipped in a week's time. Another crowd that cried, crucify him. And those two crowds are still with us. 
really hasn't changed. That's the reaction to Jesus. That's what's called for. He either is who he says he is, which would demand our adoration, our praise, our throwing down our clothes and palm branches to pave the way for his triumphal entry, or it calls for him to be removed, to be eliminated, to be gotten off the stage completely. Those are still the choices before the world. Without the cross, we have no hope. All would be lost. You would be lost forever. So how can we grasp the magnitude of that truth? How can we, how can we not be moved by it? Sin, very simply, separated us from God. It's the barrier. It's a wall. Without it, we have no hope. I mean, with sin, we have no hope. And without that wall being removed, in essence, it killed us. And unless that sin is removed, we will stay in that relationship. We will perish in our sins with that wall between us and God. And we will be separated from him forever. That's what death is, separation. Separation, in this case, from the source of life. Now, most of you are baptized Christians, so why do we need to hear this again? And I would argue, as does the author of the book of Hebrews, that it's because many, he says, have grown dull of hearing. The word I think of here is languid. It captures uh, the, the meaning here... Lacking in vigor or vitality, slack or slow, lacking in the spirit or interest, indifferent, drooping or flagging from weakness or fatigue to faint. I've heard this before. So would you pray right now? Go ahead, bow your heads. Would you pray that the Holy Spirit would work in you this morning to stir up a fresh vision for the passion that Christ had for you? Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that joy was that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross? You. So this is the whole Bible. What we're talking about here is man's primary problem, which is separation from God. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is God. He says, to which of the angels did he ever say, your throne, O God, lasts forever? And there's other references there in early part of Hebrews that clearly Jesus is God. But in chapter 2, he says Jesus is man. He is the high priest who represents God to man, that brings man to God. He is, in one person, a faithful high priest and also the mediator. 
A mediator is someone who connects two things, stands between two things. In this case, God and man. He is the one, the only one, who can join us together. We who are separated, Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. God is holy. He's not upstairs wringing his hands, hoping that you'll do him a favor. This is holy God, perfect God, perfect in every way and infinitely perfect. And we're not. We were aliens and outcasts from the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2.12, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God in the person of his son came to earth and showed us what God is like. For there is one God, 1 Timothy 5.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. People bristle that there's only one. We want many gods. We want many mediators. We want many ways to God. But there is only one God and only one true and living God. And he only has one only begotten son. And he sent him as a gift to us. And we've said, no, thank you. I don't want that gift. I want to make up my own gift. I want to shape a different kind of gift. I want a gift that's something, anything. Other than him. That's been much of the world's response to the gift. That's not what I wanted. And so he grabs us and he takes us by his Holy Spirit. And he, Jesus Christ, brings us back to God. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you who once were alienated... And enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. There is so much in that passage. He did this. This is the work of the high priest. Jesus is the priest, the mediator who is himself able to put his arm around God and his arm around man and bring us together. He is able to do this, to reconcile us. That is the ultimate priesthood. Nothing else is a priesthood like his priesthood. And I'm not going to take the time this morning. We could, uh, in the book of Hebrews, look at the fact that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, which is a superior priesthood to the Levites, I'm just not going to, we've done that before and I'm happy to do it again. But this morning I want to focus on what this high priest has done for us. This is how the author of Hebrews lays the groundwork for the development of his whole argument to focus on the person and the work of Jesus. And so the writer wants to show us Jesus' qualifications to be a priest A priest is someone who removes the obstacles between God and man. 
He's the mediator who says, hey, you have a barrier here, and I'm going to open it up. Our sin is between us and God. And Jesus has to remove our sin in order to remove that. You know, it's interesting. Everybody wants sin removed, but most people want it removed by not talking about it or calling it something else. I don't want to hear about my sins. My sins aren't so bad. They're not really anything that would create this kind of a problem, but that's not what God's Word says. You see, if we stop there, of course, that's a horrible bit of news. I'm terminal. But that's not, the, that's not where the Bible stops. It always goes on to tell us God sent the remedy. God sent His Son. He sent a priest. He sent the high priest. He sent a Savior. He's taking care of this problem. So Jesus has to remove our sin in order to remove the barrier so that we can be reconciled to God, be brought back together in communion with Him. That's what a priest does. He removes the obstacles that lay in the way of our approach to God. In chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews, he speaks of the almighty, eternal, awesome accomplishments of Jesus Christ, who is our priest in the question of access to God. Through him and his work, we have access. We can approach God. So every impediment has been removed. Jesus has removed it all forever. That's the message of this book. The question then of chapters 8 through 10 is one of approach to God. Do you have direct access or do you still have to go through human mediators? Do you need to do something? Do you need to do some good works? Do you need to go see a priest and confess? Do you need to go... Do some, uh, maybe give some money. Do you need to do something? Can you, can you go do something to make up for what you've done wrong for your sins? Do you still have to use rituals to get to God? The writer says, in view of Christ's work, you don't have to do any of that any longer. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Listen, now this is the main point. Boy, I like it when the Bible says that. It helps me. Hebrews kind of a complicated book sometimes. And we get to chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. That's the main point. That's what we have. This means it's the original, that is, the temple or tabernacle in heaven. It's not the copy. It's not the one that was out in the desert, in the wilderness, that moved around. It's not even Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. This is the real deal. This is the one those were models of. This is the eternal temple and tabernacle. This is where the eternal high priest sits at the right hand of God. Not back and forth, not once a year, all the time, 
interceding for you. This is where the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, His blood has been spilt and your sins haven't just been covered. They've been taken away. They're gone. Then he speaks about... Uh, he speaks about this in the law. It says, Behold, uh, in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So we have to conclude that the laws about which he speaks here are only and everywhere the laws that are governing our approach to God. That's what's being talked about here. How can we approach God? How can we get to him? How can we enter into his presence and be received and not killed? How can sinners enter into the presence of a holy God? In other words, uh, again, these laws govern the approach to God. They are the ritual sacrificial laws of the Old Testament. He's not talking about, I'm going to write the Ten Commandments on the hearts of those that love me, because they're already there. Or I'll write the various expositions and applications of the Ten Commandments about what to do if you find your neighbor's donkey in your pasture. That's not what we're talking about here. We are told in Romans 2 that even unbelieving Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts, the moral law. So the law he is referring to, both he and Jeremiah, is a narrow section of the law, the laws governing our approach to God. And part of what God was teaching in the Old Testament was you don't just casually walk into my presence. You're a sinner and I'm holy And I'm God and you're not. And so he's teaching, you don't just stroll into my presence. That wouldn't be a smart thing to do. These are laws that have now been taken out of the temple arena and placed by the Spirit into the hearts of believers who can approach God with freedom and confidence and without the ritual. These are the laws written on the heart that he's talking about. These are the laws that were violated that God refers to in the book of Jeremiah, or Jeremiah spoke about. So follow the argument here just for a moment. In Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it seems that there's a climax when God said, and I paraphrase, I'm not taking it anymore. It's when the temple laws were violated to such a degree that the temple precincts became houses of prostitution instead of places where God was honored. 
In the Old Covenant, when he speaks about forgiveness of sins, he is referring to the preconditions for access to God. What did the high priest have to do every year? He had to uh, remove the impediment of his approach, and he did that by sacrifice. And when he had removed the impediment for everyone else's approach by sacrifice, because they were ceremonially unclean, and they couldn't approach God if they didn't have those sacrifices for sins. The whole world, in view of Christ's work, is now ceremonially clean. That is, the whole universe has been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, and our hearts are sprinkled by the blood of Christ, and purified by faith, so that anybody, anywhere, can have access to God with that one sacrifice of faith. In the Old Covenant, you had myriad requirements that came down to their climax. One priest entering one place on one day each year, and that through a very long series of complex rituals that you find in the whole Bible, in the whole of the Bible. The high priest was the busiest man on the planet on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 10, 1 through 6, we read this story where Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who were priests, each took his censer and put fire in it, and he put incense in it, and he offered, and they offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They, they whipped up their own recipe. And so when, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. See, this is kind of a shocking story to us in a way. Yeah, we, we have precious moments, uh, in, uh, modern evangelical thought about what this is all about. Everything is just nice and sweet. Sin's not that bad and we should just get along. And God says, I told you what I wanted you to do because I'm holy and I'm trying to teach you that, teach my people that, and you just treated that very lightly. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, God said, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Now these are Aaron's sons that just died. So Aaron didn't say, have anything to say. Then Moses called Mishael and uh, Elazaphan, the son, sons of uh, Uziel, the, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near... God's going to put an exclamation point on this story here. He says, so come near, carry your brethren, Adab and Anai, excuse me, Nadab and Abihu, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, This is the exclamation point. 
Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the people, but let your brethren, um, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. That is, they should grieve over what God did. Don't grieve over them. That is, don't show any signs of mourning or you will also die because God will be angry with everybody. And so God killed these guys for an unauthorized approach. And he said, if you cry about it, God will kill you too. Now that's the approach to God as governed in the Old Testament regulations. That was the law that was violated. Approaching God the wrong way. And so when you get to Leviticus 16, 1 and 2, which is the law governing the Day of Atonement, this is what you find at the head of that chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. And when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. Before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. This is how Aaron was to enter the sanctuary area. And then follows the elaborate procedures that govern the approach to God. This is all that the writer of Hebrews is focusing on. It has nothing to do really with the moral law or the judicial law. It is only the laws governing the approach to God that are in view. It's so simple. Aaron had to offer something for his sins before he could approach God. And then he had to sacrifice something for the community so their unintentional sins did not disqualify them from access throughout the year. Remember, unintentional sins ceremonially defiled you. And if you went and touched a dead body and you didn't know it, you were ceremonially unclean. So there was a sacrifice offered once a year for all those sorts of things so that you could still approach God and not worry about the sins you didn't know about. So the laws written in the heart are not the moral and judicial laws, but rather the laws governing the approach to and access to God. And thus the whole section of Hebrews 8 through 10, indeed the whole letter, is really and truly simple. And here's our point today. It's really not that big a deal if you just read the words of Jesus in John 4, because he says it in a lot fewer words. Here's what he says, John 4, 19 through 20. Jesus says the same thing to the woman at the well in Samaria. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. In fact, she says, We worship God over over here. This is the place that you must use to approach God to get access to him. But you Jews claim that the place where you can gain access to God and worship is in Jerusalem. Here's what Jesus said to her. 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Your worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. In other words, he said, you're wrong. We worship what we do know. And he went on to say, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's it. In the light of Christ's work, we worship, that is, we approach God in spirit, recognizing that the Spirit of God is the temple in truth, not in type. And we worship God in spirit as opposed to a particular physical location. And we worship Him in truth uh, and remember the true tabernacle as opposed to the type. That's what it means. We don't need to go to Jerusalem, we don't need to go to Samaria, and we don't need to go to New York City or any other place. Wherever we are, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. But let me make a note. It's another subject for another day. This isn't you can worship him on the lake in your bass boat. We still gather with the people of God, the body of Christ, and we come together to corporately worship him in many locations. But no longer was there this central location. It's now been spread. It's been dispersed to the whole world. Every Christian around the world has been given access to God by Jesus Christ, and they worship God in the fullness of Christ. This is why you read this exposition throughout the Scriptures now. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that through Him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. That's what it's all about. And that's why we read in 2 Corinthians 6.16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the hope. This is the promise that God has come and he's with us today. What's great in the book of Hebrews? You know, he says the old system, that old system of ceremonies is, is obsolete. It's fading away. Why? Who's our temple now? Jesus. Remember he said, tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. Who is our sacrifice? All those lambs and goats and bulls. One sacrifice, Jesus, the eternal Lamb of God. Who is our high priest? Jesus, of the order of Melchizedek, who lives forever. So we have a new high priest, we have a new temple, we have a new sacrifice. And so the argument of Hebrews is, for those of you who want to go back and do it the way we used to do it, that is worthless. It's already served its purpose. It was always pointing to Jesus. He's here now. We don't need that anymore. We've graduated. That is obsolete. And in fact, to make it even better, if you're in Christ, you're a priest. And you're a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because you're connected to Christ. You're part of Him. 
This is why Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And this is why the Day of Atonement was the predicate, the precondition of the Feast of Tabernacles. The sacrifice had to be offered to make the way for God and man to dwell together in peace. And the writer of Hebrews is simply saying that this has happened. Jesus Christ, by the offering of himself, brought his own blood into the temple that you could see on earth, not into the temple you see on earth, but to the temple that is the true temple, the actual temple, the tabernacle in heaven, and, he, and by offering of himself, this new world offering has brought about a new world order, a new creation. Access to God is not restricted to any earthly, uh, excuse me, to any earthly location and is not encumbered with any ritual prerequisites. Now let me just say this, it's, this is not contrary to a lovely sound liturgy which brings order and instruction, but does not in itself make us right with God. The cross of Jesus did that. All the shadows of the Old Testament have now been taken up in the light that is Jesus Christ. And so this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews has spent ten chapters telling us is not the case It really has never been the case. You must have faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to have incense, no bells or smells. You don't have to have an elaborate ritual. That detracts and it moves us backwards. Worship God in spirit and in truth. So as we approach and think about the cross this week, I want you to think about what happened there. How beautiful, how profound, how glorious for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we acknowledge that you alone are the initiator and worker of our salvation. You alone have enabled us to have access to you through our eternal high priest and only mediator. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist you in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your mercy and grace. Clearly, Christ demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through your son. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our strength in whom we will trust. Our shield and the horn of our salvation, you are our stronghold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is clear that the superior person and work of Jesus Christ has opened up our approach and access to God. The whole story of redemption just opens up like a gorgeous flower. I think that's one way we think of it. If we think about the whole Bible that way, that there's this, at the very beginning, even in Genesis, right after the fall, there is this little bud of promise this little bud that appears, hope. And throughout history, it begins to grow and swell and, and starts to open up. But when we get to the gospel, when we get to the work of Christ, 
ultimately to the resurrection. It's in full bloom. And it's there for us to behold and to smell and to enjoy and to praise the Lord for it. The new world offering has been offered and the new world order is now here. All other sacrifices had to be repeated often. They did nothing thoroughly, did nothing that lasted, did nothing really by way of cleansing us from our sins. For the scripture says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. When Jesus was nailed to the cross and cried, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, he was finished with transgression. He put an end to sin. He brought in everlasting righteousness. And if he is your sacrifice, if your sins were transferred to him, if you were identified with him, then on the cross, your guilty record was blotted out altogether. And guilt is always the problem. Why was there such cleansing power in our Savior's blood? I'll give you four things quickly as we come to the table. First, because of the glory of his person. Just think about who he was. He was none other than the light of light, very God of very God. Colossians 2.9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Second, because of the perfection of his character. In him was no sin, nor any tendency to sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Third, because of the nature of his death. He didn't die by disease or old age or natural causes, but he died a death of violence, well pictured by the killing of the victim at the altar. He didn't die in his bed. The Lamb of God was taken by wicked hands and whipped and spit upon and then nailed to a cross, put on public display, and he died a felon's death. And finally, because of the spirit in which our Lord bore all of this, John 10, 18, no man takes it, that is, my life, from me, but I lay it down of myself. He gave himself for me. He laid down his life for his sheep. And he knows his sheep by name. He knows your name. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy... Remember, that's you, that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, we have been privileged to enter this holy place of worship. We have received your mercy and grace, and in your fear we have bowed before your holy name. We wait for your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your congregation. O Holy Trinity, you condescended to us in the person of the Son. You found us when we were lost. You showed mercy on us and redeemed us. Your gift to us cannot be equaled, for it is of infinite value. Teach us, O Lord, to love you and to serve you, to be filled with joy and delight. Lord, we have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your honor dwells, that we may lift up the voice of thanksgiving and tell 
of all your wondrous works. Open to us the gates of righteousness, and we will go through them, and we will praise the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Bless now our rest. Bless now our meal. Bless now our conversation and communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.